Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Cynthia Lummis, Senator-elect from Wyoming, former member of Congress, former state treasurer, and former state legislator. We talk about politics, how money influences everything, and the incentives of government. Cynthia also tells us about her hope for Congress, the people who are having trouble ends meet, and what Bitcoin represents. It's hard to put into words what talking to Senator Lummis is like in person. She's such a sweet, caring person, and it's hard not to walk away encouraged after interacting with her. She clearly has a heart that wants to see everyone succeed and understands the importance of Bitcoin going forward. I hope this interview can help you understand who she is and how she will be in her role as a senator. Cynthia Loomis, thank you, Senator, for being here. How's everything going? You know, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Jimmy, and things are going great. We got through our November 3rd election, mm. and I went to freshman orientation. I call it senator <laughs> school. So I was in Washington for a few days getting a temporary office. Mm. It is on the ground floor of the Dirksen building. There are three Senate office buildings. Mm. The Dirksen is the one in the middle, mm. and found out what the swearing-in is mm -hmm. going to be like and went through things like sexual harassment training and <laughs> employee mm -hmm. law provisions and met with the physician of the Capitol, the chaplain of the Capitol, mm -hmm. as well as the Republican senators in my mm -hmm. case. I didn't spend much time with Democrat Senate leadership, mm -hmm. but I did spend the two days with all seven newly elected senators, hmm. three of whom are Democrats and four are Republicans. Okay. All right. Wow. So there's a whole senator-like orientation kind of thing that's, that's going That's correct. On? Okay. Yes. And What's we, that like? Well, we all got temporary offices. Mm -hmm. We met originally in uh, the Capitol building in mm -hmm. one of the meeting rooms. Mm -hmm. So we got to meet each other. Mm -hmm and then get some briefings from the Secretary of the Senate. Mm. We also spent some time not only walking around in the Senate chambers and understanding what the protocols are for being in the cloak rooms, which are these little ante rooms in the Senate, but what it what the protocol is on the floor of the Senate. Mm -hmm. We don't know yet what desks in the Senate will be ours because mm. everything happens based on seniority mm. in the Senate. So if a senator wants a different desk <laughs> because they have a particular admiration for a longtime member of the Senate whose desk was theirs, mm. and it they can move to a different desk. It, yeah, it's very... It's all based on seniority, and it's very tradition-oriented. Mm. Now, I served eight years in the House of Representatives, mm. and it wasn't nearly that oriented towards seniority, and the traditions were less fixed mm. and less revered. Mm. But it seems that the Senate has a more reverential approach to those who went before. Mm. So in that respect, it, the historic nature of the Senate is very different from the House and is very much more appreciated and respected. Mm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like House of Lords and House of Commons or something like that. Just sort of one is a little bit more because you have a longer term and, and things like that. Maybe they as they have more time to establish, you know, traditions and things like that. Exactly. Well, some when I was in the House, we used to say the House plays rugby and mm. the Senate plays golf. Uh, so that sort of, to me, says a lot about the uh, rhythms of the House versus the Senate. Hey, I didn't realize there was a cultural change from going from the House to the Senate. And that sounds like something that you're in the middle of. It is something I'm in the middle of, and it's going to be an adjustment. Mm. So among the things I've started doing as mm. a direct result mm 
of developing an appreciation for those historic precedents Mm. is to do some more studying. Mm. So I'm starting with the seat that Mm. I am assuming and Mm. going clear back to the first senator who held the specific seat Mm. that I am assuming, and Mm. I'm trying to learn more about each of those gentlemen, Mm. and then I'll branch out from there. Uh Right, so it's some multiple of six years from bef- from now before, and you, you you go every six years and look at each one. Exactly. How many people were before you in <laughs> Wyoming? <laughs> well, I'm not exactly uh-huh. sure yet uh-huh. because I'm in the middle of that research, mm. but probably about twelve. Okay. Wow, that's that's a lot. I assume they had at least six years, six year terms. So some of them probably had like twelve or eighteen, something like that. Yes. So. That's crazy. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about money and politics, because this is something that comes up all the time. Can you summarize for us how money plays in politics, like how it, specifically in getting elected, get, you know, all of, all of the stuff that comes with that? Because I, I think you've held positions at various levels. I think you were in the state legislature for a while, and then you're obviously in the House, and you're now in the Senate. I imagine those have some different economics, but what what are they? Well, the first time I ran for the Wyoming legislature, the mm. state house, mm. was in 1978. Mm. I think my campaign cost me $300. Wow. <laughs> and my most recent campaign, which mm. was wrapped up just a couple weeks ago, mm. was over $2 million. <laughs> But Jimmy, mine was probably the cheapest campaign in the country for a Senate race. Mm. Others are running into the Mm. 100-plus million dollars for a Senate race, even in my neighboring state of Montana, which only has about 1.3 million people. So the cost of that Senate race was astronomical Mm. uh, compared to mine. A hundred million in Montana. Like, I can't imagine, like, how many commercials that buys you and, like, what kind of signage you get. Like, how do they even spend a hundred million dollars in Montana? Well, exactly. And the the same thing happened in South Carolina. Mm. The Democratic candidate against the sitting incumbent in Mm. South Carolina, Mm. that's Lindsey Graham, Mm. had more money than he could even spend Mm -hmm. because you hit a point of saturation Mm -hmm. with regard to media advertising Mm -hmm. of all kinds, whether it's television, radio, online, Uh and he literally had more money than he could spend. That's the first time I've ever heard of that happening, (laughs) but that's the kind of money that was invested in this election. Wow, that's so insane that they hit a point of saturation. There's very rarely any sort of place where you have a budget and you say, I want to spend this money, and you can't find a place to spend it. That's exactly right. And I think that that's an illustration of how different Mm. this election was than past elections. Mm. I can never remember that being the case Mm. before in an earlier election. Mm. So this year will be analyzed Mm. for how dramatically different it was from Mm. past elections in terms of the amount of money spent and how it was raised. Mm. And the Democrats have a huge head start Mm. on Republicans in terms of their ability to raise money Mm. through small dollars online. Mm. They have something called Act Blue Mm. that is an online fundraising mechanism that sends money directly to candidates. Mm. Money sent directly to candidates is more efficient because candidates can get the lowest rate Mm. for buying a TV ad, whereas Mm. if an outside group, a third-party group, comes in and buys an ad, Mm. they're competing for the higher rates. Mm. But candidates have to, by law, Mm. be quoted the lowest rate available. Mm. Well, the Act Blue, which is the Democrats' direct fundraising effort, realized that, got money directly to candidates so they could maximize the 
outreach they had, the saturation they had through those small dollar donations, and it's been very effective. The Republicans are beginning to catch up, but Mm. it's going to take a while. Mm. What changed in this past election that made, I guess, the cost of an election astronomical? Well, when it part of it is Act Blue and a lot of outside money going into campaigns in states where one party or another thought they could pick up a seat. Mm. Uh, certainly, that was true in Mark Kelly's win in Arizona. Mm. He beat the incumbent, Martha McSally, Mm. and a lot of that money came in from California. Mm. And part of it is because Californians know that their senators are always going to be Democrats, Mm. at least based on current political demographics. Mm. So they want to take their money and have an impact in other states and other races. Mm. And so they made a huge impact in Arizona. I think they were pretty active in Colorado, Mm. which was another state that flipped from Republican to Democrat. Cory Gardner was defeated by John Hickenlooper. And so this is an area where Democrats who have a sure bet Mm. of keeping California in Mm. Democrat hands can Mm. go out and play in other states. Mm. Conversely, in my state, which is very Republican, Mm. you might have some Republicans that can go out and assume that a Republican's going to win in Wyoming, so they can go out and try to impact other races. Mm. The difference is California has, (laughs) what, 52? Uh million people or something yeah it's 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 insane yeah Yeah, compared to only about six hundred thousand in wyoming so Mm. you just have a concentration of money in california that is unique to california Mm. so they can really get involved in other races Mm. and what do they spend all of this money on I, i imagine a lot of it is ads of some kind or another but i mean there have got to be other costs involved absolutely there are so there are field staff Mm -hmm. there are databases that Mm. you buy so you can understand Mm -hmm. Where to campaign? Where to campaign. Uh So it's so sophisticated now, Mm -hmm. Jimmy, that I can go to a door Mm. and I know that this person has not yet voted, has not, is undecided, Uh and leans either right of center or left of center. Uh-huh. And I was asking, how can you possibly know yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that's as a privacy advocate. I know, it's, really I know it, it bothers me too. Uh-huh. But they said, well, we know that they subscribe to The Rifleman, which is the NRA magazine. So uh-huh. that means they lean right. Uh-huh. Or they subscribe to some other magazine that uh-huh. normally is subscribed to by someone who leans left. Uh-huh. So you're, the choices that you make online, Mm-hmm. the magazines to which you subscribe uh-huh. the maybe the the services they uh-huh. know demographically uh-huh. are you watching MSNBC well you uh-huh. must lean left or uh-huh. you're watching Fox News uh-huh. so you must lean right uh-huh. and all of that is distilled uh-huh. down to the house by house level uh-huh. and so they know to maximize your your time spent if you're mm. going to be literally knocking on doors mm. advocating for a candidate which doors to knock on and which doors not to wow so it looks like they've been driven by data analytics of some oh kind. so much so oh. and and you know more about oh, that oh, jimmy than oh, i do oh. but they're taking the same data analy- analytics mm-hmm. that would cause if i go on wayfair mm-hmm. and wayfair knows that i'm looking at a love seat mm-hmm. All of a sudden, all starts getting these things <laughs> yeah. that pop up and say, oh, look at this love seat. Look mm-hmm. at that love seat. Yeah. Wayfair knows that I'm looking for a love seat. I'm not looking for a wine cooler. Mm. Well, the same is true politically. Wow. And so I think it does show that the area of expertise that you hold and mm-hmm. that a lot of your listeners hold mm-hmm. is being applied now in the political realm. That's kind of scary because, I mean, <laughs> at least for me, I like making sure that I have as little of a footprint. Although, you know, I mean, I have a Twitter account and things like that. But as far as like my shopping habits and stuff, it's a little creepy that, you know, all that stuff is known about me. And like, you know, people that are 
candidates get to use that? Is this filtering down to even like local elections? Oh, absolutely. It is creepy. It's very Mm. creepy. Mm. But it is the way of campaigning in the year 2020. Mm. And the more information about ourselves that we Mm. make available Mm. uh, through our choices online or our Mm. shopping habits that are gathered in in databases, the more apt that information is to be applied in political campaigns as well. Wow. So I can't imagine like being an undecided voter. You must like it because everyone has the same data. You must get absolutely bombarded by advertisements from both sides. Absolutely bombarded. You are so right. Mm. So the (laughs) the safe bet Uh is whether you've decided or not, mm-hmm. just say, I'm for X or I'm for Y, mm-hmm. just so you won't be bothered. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. And so there's all this money coming in. Obviously, the people that are contributing this money want something back. What, what's their end game? What, is it just so that they, have, they get some law passed or, or, or is there more than that? Well, I really do believe, and maybe this is the Pollyanna in mm-hmm. me, I, I still really believe that people who contribute to political p- campaigns do so mainly because they have a certain ideology. Mm. They view themselves as either more Republican or Libertarian, so mm. they're more oriented towards personal freedom mm. and personal privacy, mm-hmm. but a more transparent and smaller government. Mm. Or they lean towards a more Democrat philosophy, which seems to me to be less personal privacy, Mm -hmm. but more government privacy, Mm -hmm. larger federal governments, Mm -hmm. and a comfort level with Mm -hmm. more government encroachment in their personal lives. So Mm -hmm. less personal freedom in exchange for a more level playing field, regardless Mm -hmm. of your personal ambition Mm -hmm. or work ethic. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's, and so there's, it seems to me that people who tend to think like I do, which is Mm -hmm. more individual freedom, more Mm -hmm. entrepreneurial, Mm -hmm. it would tend to support Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. So that is my Pollyanna view of the world, that it truly is based on core values Mm -hmm. and a philosophy, whereas, you know, there are some people, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. who are trying to buy either access Mm -hmm. to candidates so they can influence their decision-making about certain issues, Mm. or even more specifically, Mm. they have identified someone who supports a very specific certain position Mm. that they can benefit from, Mm. and then supporting that specific person because of one very specific position. Mm. Yeah, I can see that definitely for industry lobbying or something like that. And what what role do, I guess, lobbyists and these lobbies play in politics with respect to government budgets and things like that? Well, there. what I have found is there are certain committees that attract very little attention from lobbyists. Mm. There are things like the Judiciary Committee, Mm. which is picking judges. Mm -hmm. There are things like the Government Oversight Committee, Mm. because they're not making laws, Mm. they are just overseeing that the executive branch is implementing the laws as they were designed. Mm. So those are committees that where you don't have a lot of lobbyist attention. Mm. Where you have a lot of lobbyist attention is like the Commerce Committee, (laughs) the Banking Committee, the Finance Committee. Mm -hmm. Those are all committees that are affecting public policy Mm. that can directly affect your pocketbook Mm. or your ability to trade Mm -hmm. and or it could affect an industry like Mm. the transportation industry Mm. or the energy industry Mm. where the federal government is picking winners and losers in energy Mm. and some people want to weigh in on that outcome and they want to know they have access to people Mm. who are going to be making those decisions that's Mm. where lobbying money comes in And how does that affect the budget at every level? I'm sure you're very familiar with the state level and the federal level, Mm -hmm. at least. Like, I I imagine that has to affect budgeting in some way. It affects it at the federal level far Mm -hmm. more than at the state level, Mm -hmm. in my experience. Mm -hmm. In the, the state level, the way that budgets are made is in large part 
finding out how much money you have to spend mm. and allocating it among the typical state mm. obligations, mm. K through 12 education, mm. corrections, mm-hmm. uh, health care, mm. and infrastructure just, maybe. Yeah, okay. and infrastructure, general operations of government, mm-hmm. certainly highways and airports. Mm-hmm. At the federal level, I think lobbying dramatically mm. affects budgets. Mm. And it's part of the reason, because the federal government can print money. Mm. <laughs> and so there's really no limits on spending. Mm. And because of that, there's a lot of lobbying with regard to how many is spent. At the state level, you're more constrained because mm. states can't print money. Mm. And... So they have to either live within their budgets or within their ability to borrow money. Mm. Whereas, so they have constraints. There are sideboards on states. Mm-hmm. There's no sideboards on the federal government. <laughs> so uh, would you say that there's less lobbying at the state level because of the budget constraints that you have? There's certainly less lobbying that affects the budget. Mm. There is lobbying that affects policy, mm. but in Washington, it's both. Hmm. It's policies that affect the private sector and individuals, Mm -hmm. but it's also policies that affect expenditures. Hmm. So you're talking about the federal government and how they really have no limit. You know, I mean, at the very least, nominally, we're supposed to have the debt ceiling, right? Like that's supposed to be a limitation on on the budgets that were or the deficits that federal government is allowed to run how does that square what what, what's the actual um process by which that gets subverted or whatever it's called suspend (laughs) you suspend the debt ceiling Mm. and i like you jimmy Mm. when i got there thought the thing to do Uh is to don't raise the debt ceiling Mm -hmm. without getting in return Mm -hmm. some spending cuts. Mm -hmm. So I thought this is the magic potion (laughs) to reining in Mm. spending. Mm. And I was totally wrong (laughs) because if you can get enough people to Mm. suspend Mm -hmm. the debt ceiling, hold it completely in abeyance while Mm -hmm. you spend and spend and spend, Mm. then does not act as a curb. Mm. And certainly that's been the case during COVID. Mm. The pro- and I get it. I get why the Cures Act mm. was important. Mm. We had individuals who had no means of feeding their families. Mm. We had employers who desperately wanted to mm. keep their businesses open mm. and employ the people who needed to feed their families, mm. but they were not allowed to. Mm. In a case like that where government intervenes, mm. government then needs to mm. provide some financial valve or outlet. Mm. So I totally get that. Our problem as a society was that we were spending more than we were taking in for years before COVID hit. Mm, mm. And so there was no runway Mm. left Mm. to, and we just had to keep spending Mm. way beyond our headlights, way Mm. beyond. And so now here we find ourselves, what, nearing 27 trillion Mm -hmm. in debt. When I entered Congress, Jimmy, in 2009, the end of 2008, I think our we were below 10 trillion. Yeah. We were 9 point something trillion. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it that has tripled mm-hmm. in a very short time, very mm-hmm. short time. Mm-hmm. And so I it's one of the reasons I'm kind of interested in Bitcoin mm-hmm. uh, because I see as we print more money mm-hmm. and the US dollar has inflation built into mm-hmm. it already. Mm-hmm. 2% inflation every year is their target. Mm-hmm. But when we're printing money like we've had to during the last year or two, we're, we, I think we're debasing our currency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think while the same, I want to take a two-pronged approach going to the Senate. Mm-hmm. One is to try to rationalize our spending. Mm-hmm. So for people who stay with the U.S. dollar as their main fiat currency, that we're trying to preserve as much of its value as we can. But in light of the fact that neither party, mm-hmm. Republicans or Democrats, have shown any restraint Mm. with regard to spending, I think we need to have another track. Mm. 
And that is a track that stores value, that Mm -hmm. retains value, that has a limited supply and thereby scarcity, preserving its value and hopefully increasing its value, but never debasing its value. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I'm attracted to Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like, well, what inflation does is it actually like takes away people's savings, right? And that, that debasement. And what it sounds like you're interested in is making it easier for people to save so that they can have funds for a rainy day, something that Congress obviously hasn't done in exactly. a Exactly. <laughs> you know, I walked in this, this uh-huh. building today. Mm-hmm. There were men across the street mm-hmm. building a building, mm-hmm. construction workers, mm-hmm. and they're being encouraged to save their money mm-hmm. for when their bodies wear out and Mm. they can't work anymore. Mm. Well, but by the same token, the same government that is Mm. encouraging them to save their money Mm. is making sure their money is worth less Mm. and less and less. Mm. And so I think it's kind of cruel Mm. to put people in that position. So Mm. I'm I'm just delighted Mm. that there's an alternative to buying power loss that Mm. is associated with the U.S. dollar, Mm. and that alternative is Bitcoin. Yeah, and and that's obviously something that my listeners are very familiar with, and you're you're kind of preaching to the choir here. But I'm curious, I I think you have a great message, this idea of you know, helping the American worker essentially like save their money, right? Like and not have it debased away from them. How do you communicate that to your center colleagues? How do you make the case? And what sort of policy would you advocate for in order to make that happen? Well, I think to start out with, mm-hmm. there, the policy is let's keep our hands as federal policymakers mm-hmm off of this Mm. and let it naturally evolve. Mm. Let's see how it does Mm. before we start tinkering and messing Mm. with it. In the case of, and the example that I would use while I'm trying to inform and make other senators aware of Bitcoin and Mm. how it works and Mm. why it works and why its fundamentals are so solid, is case in point my state of Wyoming. Mm. Wyoming has passed laws that allow for banks to be chartered Mm. that can transact Mm -hmm. in both Bitcoin and fiat currency. Mm. And it's the first state to do so. Mm. And it's even set up a chancery court which can allow for the development Mm. of case law Mm. about the use of Bitcoin Mm. in relation to commerce and Mm. commercial activities, Mm. as well as personal transactions. So Mm. we want to be a state that Mm. is the incubator of innovation for Mm. Bitcoin. Mm. And if you look in recent years, the states really have been Mm. the innovators when it comes to a level of government Mm. that is more nimble Mm. and able to help create and shape government policies around things that are happening in the real world. Mm. And so in the case of Bitcoin, I'm hopeful that I can not only go to my fellow senators and explain what I know about Mm. Bitcoin, which isn't a lot, Mm -hmm. but at least I have an understanding and appreciation of the fundamentals. Mm. And explain to them how it works, why it works, why it should be a component Mm -hmm. of financial diversified asset allocation, Mm -hmm. and why it is maybe the most stable store of value that is available to anyone who's Mm -hmm. saving money today. Mm -hmm. And then also explain what my state is doing and Mm -hmm. say, let my state and other states that want to try and innovate in this area, let them legislate. Let's Mm -hmm. watch them Mm -hmm. and learn from them, learn from their mistakes Mm -hmm. and their successes before the federal government gets involved. Mm. Yeah, I guess what you're advocating here is sort of like, you know, different states trying different things. It's almost like entrepreneurship and uh, governance or something like that. You've got it. Absolutely. Yeah, and through that, maybe uh, come up with policy that's, you know, that works for everybody and gets them to be able to save and so on. Yes. Okay. Well, that sounds awesome. I really hope that that will come to pass. I guess the question I would have then is, 
in the meantime, there are certain crypto laws and things like, or at least the way that the IRS is treating Bitcoin and things like that. Like, are there any plans for you to change or to try to influence those federal government organizations, you know, towards maybe treating Bitcoin a little more fairly than it's been? I want to explore those ideas, mm. but for these first this first year or two in the mm. Senate, mm. what I've come to realize is more information mm. about Bitcoin needs to become readily available to members of the Senate so they can become more conversant and comfortable with it. Mm. Because as you know, some knee-jerk reactions to Bitcoin is, oh, well, it's used to hide dark money and (laughs) transactions that are nefarious. Uh And then they stop their thinking Uh right there. Mm. And I want to dispel the notion that Mm. that is the main purpose of Bitcoin. Just as there are dark money Mm -hmm. transactions in Bitcoin, there are dark money transactions in fiat currency. Mm -hmm. And they're not... That's an apples-to-apples comparison. We Mm -hmm. shouldn't dismiss Mm -hmm. Bitcoin because that's a possibility. It's Mm -hmm. a possibility with any investment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So first we need to get past that. Then we need to be able to explain, here's how it works. Mm -hmm. Here's why it's stable. Mm -hmm. Here's why it should be part of investment portfolios. Mm -hmm. And even more important, here's why it's a better store of value Mm -hmm. than the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. And I know that scares some people, Mm -hmm. but we have brought this on ourselves Mm -hmm. as federal policymakers Mm -hmm. by debasing the Mm -hmm. value of the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. So we can either be in denial and Mm -hmm. say, oh, we're going to get this under control. Mm -hmm. Well, never in my experience in the federal government have we even approached the notion of getting it under control. Mm -hmm. We... Tell me, Jimmy, do you know of a plan to reduce our national debt? I have not heard a single one since I've been paying attention. Neither neither have I, Jimmy. (laughs) And so I, since there's no policy, there's Mm. no committee Mm. or group that's been put together to say, how are we going to retire this debt over time? Mm. It doesn't exist. Mm. And because of that, I think we need to embrace acknowledge Mm. our failure and i consider it a failure Mm. we need to acknowledge our failure Mm. and say okay since we have not responsibly addressed this issue we have to find ways to help the american people retire with dignity Mm. and make sure that what they are saving is going to have a significant value at least flat value Mm -hmm. or increasing value going forward. Mm -hmm. But right now, all we're assuring them is a declining value. Yeah, in a sense, all the extra spending is being taken from their savings. So it's kind of, I mean, at least we in the Bitcoin world call inflation sort of like a stealth taxation, right? Like taxation without which it's very strange. It's taxation without representation because it's done by the Fed, (laughs) without any legislation because, yeah, I mean, Congress doesn't really control the Fed. They're supposed to be independent. And, uh, you know, without any transparency whatsoever because we only find out about it, if at all, like months later. So... It's so strange to me that this power of taxing has been given to this separate organization that's almost not supposed to be public almost. It's, it still boggles my mind that mm-hmm. this, uh, the central banks work the way they do. And it's, I don't know, a little bit of a tragedy that so few people seem to understand it. Well, I agree. But we, it's something we need to start discussing mm-hmm. in, uh, in very open settings. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Members of Congress and the U- uh, the House and the Senate mm. are both embarrassed mm. to discuss it mm. in the open mm. because we're the ones who have helped create this mess mm. by deferring it, thinking mm. we can address this later. Mm. It's getting to the point where we need to have a plan to stabilize Social Security. Mm. We need to have a plan to stabilize Mm. Medicare. And in addition, we need to have a plan to reduce our Mm. debt. Mm. And we have none of those. Mm. I was 
I co-sponsored a bipartisan bill when I was in the U.S. House Mm. that would have stabilized Social Security Mm. for 70 Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And it went nowhere. Mm. And the more we put it off, the more difficult it is to stabilize. Mm. The same is true with Medicare. Mm. But even with those programs set aside, Mm. we're getting to the point where if the interest on our national debt if the rate increases very much mm-hmm. and it's hard to imagine interest rates more favorable than they are now but if interest rates increase very much mm-hmm. we could be paying more in interest on the national debt mm-hmm. than we pay for national defense mm-hmm. and if you look at the constitution national defense is one of the most important obligations of the congress mm-hmm. so We've backed ourselves into a corner. Mm. I think we need to acknowledge that we've backed ourselves into a corner. Mm. I support a two-pronged approach Mm. to getting out of this. One is to come up with a plan Mm. to address these major problems that we've created in our debt. And the other one is to have an alternative policy that I think the bedrock of which is Bitcoin Mm. going forward. So in the event that the Congress fails Mm. in a mission to reduce the national debt, to Mm. stabilize Social Security and Medicare, that we actually have a Mm. plan B Mm -hmm. that is stable, that is secure, Mm. that has a foundation, Mm. that is based on 21 million Bitcoin, no more than that ever being mined, Mm -hmm. and something that can sustain its value because we know what the policy is behind it. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the things about that absolute scarcity, that sound money that Bitcoin represents is that this is not something that Congress can very easily dip their hand in the cookie jar to to grab some of, whereas that's very easy with uh, with the dollar. It's not necessarily Congress, it's more the Fed, and then they lend money to Congress or to the federal government or whatever. But ultimately, it comes out of our, our savings, which is... Like, like I said, it's so mind-boggling to me that this is not something that most people seem to really get. It's like, oh, who cares about the debt? Where you know, it's uh, you know, the Keynesian quote is, "It's debt we owe to ourselves." Well, no, it's one group of people to another, and it's usually, you know, the present people to the future people. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yeah, and that's scary. Like yeah. what? And it seems like we're we're now in the position where we kind of have to pay the piper. I think we do. Mm. I think we do have to pay the piper. Mm. So one of the things I'm hopeful, again, putting Mm -hmm. my Pollyanna hat on, Mm. is that going forward, we can come off our our COVID Mm -hmm. spending hangover. Mm. Hopefully after we get a vaccine, Mm -hmm. people normalize Mm -hmm. from this weird COVID time, Mm. and then start addressing what will be the hangover from this? Mm-hmm. How do we rebuild our economy? How mm-hmm. do we bring jobs back from China? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that we have robust employment? And how do we start reducing our debt and our deficit mm-hmm. or explore ways to provide regular working Americans with an option that is not tied to the Fed? the Congress, mm-hmm. and to Wall Street. Mm. And we finally have one. Mm. There, For a while, there was no alternative. Mm. But now there's, a, there's an alternative out there that we can turn to. So I don't want Congress to mess it up. I hope that we'll have good policies at the IRS to nurture mm-hmm. a, a field that in which Bitcoin can grow. But, you know, Congress, you know, if, as they say, if it moves, tax it. And so if it stops moving, subsidize it. You know, it's, that's, just, that's just kind of the, been our history. So I hope we let this one go and recognize the unique qualities that Bitcoin has in terms of providing a bedrock of value for people who are saving for their futures and working really hard to do it. Those guys who are across the street from where Mm -hmm. we are right now that are building that building, Mm -hmm. they're working really hard. Mm -hmm. 
let's find a way for them to save and have that value preserved. So when they really do retire, when their bodies just wear out from all that hard physical work, that they really can rest from their labors in in a secure retirement. That's a beautiful way of describing what store value really actually means at a very human practical level. And it's that you know, you you want to be able to save for the future and plan for the future, but you know, you won't be able to if it gets debased away from you or essentially stolen, which which it, is so It is. It gets people mm-hmm. young, young mm-hmm. people like mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. to say, Why should I save? Mm. Because my saving is going to be so unrewarded mm. that I don't know that mm. it's worth doing. You know, if I were your age, I'd actually entertain the, the, those mm. thoughts. Mm. But we have to address this. It's mm. We've come to the end, I think, of our rope, and it's time to address it. I don't know how we can put this off anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, allowing people to save and have a future and have hope for the future. In a, in a way, like, savings is, for many people, like their hope. And when you when you take that away, it's just sort of like reducing their hope. And instead, they have to live for now and consume way too much now. And it's crazy to me that because there are no good stores of value, essentially people have been putting their money into stock and real estate. And both things just seem way beyond their utility value. And now they have a store value premium. What do you think will happen as more people adopt Bitcoin. What, what do you think your, how do you think your role will change? How do you think the role of politics and society will change? Mm. Well, that's something I hope to explore with people like you mm. in the future. Mm. Because, for example, I would like to see my state's permanent funds mm. have some Bitcoin in them mm. to have a, a solid base mm. and then still be able to invest in mm-hmm. the stock market mm-hmm. and some of those mm-hmm. what I would say are, are riskier investments mm. for people who cannot afford to invest in land which mm. is another finite resource mm. or who just their lifestyle is mm. not based in land Bitcoin provides something that I think is going to be as stable as land. Mm. So for somebody like me who's a rancher, Mm. my whole world revolves around land, Mm. what it can produce, Mm -hmm. the euphoria (laughs) that I get by being on the land. That's not everybody has that, mm. and especially in a world that is urban than rural, the agrarian person is fewer and farther between. Mm. Bitcoin can provide, I think, in some ways, that same bedrock mm. of comfort mm. that you have something of value mm. that nobody can take away from you. Mm. And so I think that in some ways, Bitcoin will provide some people security Mm. and so it's something that that can't be stolen from me it's like an education Mm. you know nobody can steal your education from you Mm. nobody can steal your bitcoin from you Mm. you know if you're if you're you have your wallet secure Mm -hmm. nobody can take it Mm. and i think that there's some peace of mind to that Mm. and in some ways where we see on social media where your opinions are discounted if they're not shared by the owners of the platform. (laughs) You know, with Bitcoin, there's a complete detachment Mm -hmm. from that kind of social penalty. Mm. So I just think it's going to provide some personal security that what I own is not transparent to the world, Mm. but I know about it. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a sense of calm. Mm. So in some ways, I think that it provides sort of an emotional security blanket Mm. that some people can't feel Mm. because they see how much more everything costs Mm. as the money that they have saved doesn't keep up with those costs. Mm. But if you have Bitcoin, you know you've got that bedrock Mm. and that store of it. And so in some ways, the The store of value is an emotional construct, Mm. much the way it is an economic construct. Mm. Yeah, it is sort of like an anxiety in fiat money, isn't there? Because 
you know that it's being sort of slowly drained away. And it's probably kind of like, you know, water you swim in or something that you don't really notice until you get into Bitcoin, maybe. And then you go like, wait a second, <laughs> I don't need to be this anxious. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I those are some of the things that I suspect mm -hmm. will happen. Mm. But it'll be fun for me to stay in touch with you and mm -hmm. learn from you because mm -hmm. you tend to engage with people who are in the formative years of Bitcoin and you will learn more quickly than I will mm -hmm. what some of the ancillary benefits or consequences are mm -hmm. of not being tied to a fiat currency for everything. So I'm anxious to stay in touch with you <laughs> and people like you because you're the pioneers. Mm -hmm. Well, I can certainly tell you that it's it's changed my thinking on a lot of things, like in surprising ways. Like, I know, like before Bitcoin, I used to be a big bargain hunter, right? Like go on the websites and find like, uh, you know, Black Friday's coming up soon. So that would have been like a big day for me where I was like, <laughs> all, right, all right, let's look for all the best bargains on all, all kinds of stuff, buying stuff I don't need and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it's like, okay, I'm not buying it until I absolutely need it, you know? And because the savings technology is available, the store value is available. I'm like, why would I buy that? Even if it's on sale, if I just wait, it's going to be cheaper in the long run. Mm -hmm. If I just wait, even if it's not on sale. And that that's a very different mentality. And I feel like, and there's something that I mentioned in other to other people, is that it that's the kind of mentality that causes you to save, that causes capital accumulation, and that causes entrepreneurship. Because ultimately what you end up doing, you, you save this money so that you can have something much better later. And that, that to me is like the mentality that people need to be in in order to grow and make civilization better. So do you think that mm. it will unleash people to, who are entrepreneurial minded mm. Mm. to say, okay, I have enough Bitcoin mm -hmm. that I can do a startup Take that risk, mm. and if I fail, mm. I still have this store of value mm -hmm. to back me up in the future. Do you think it will have that effect? It certainly will have that effect. So I did a show with Michael Flaxman, who's one of my friends who's done a lot of startups, and we talk specifically about startups and the startup world right now. And the dirty secret of startups right now is that it's almost always outside funded, right? There's VC money or angel funding or whatever. It's never the founders, well, it is sometimes, but it's almost never the founders themselves that put their own money on the line. And you act very differently in a startup when it's your own money on the mm -hmm. line versus someone else's money on the line. For a lot of younger people, it's kind of like, well, okay, well, I'll work like 90 hours a week, but it's at least somebody else's money, so I'm not taking that much of a risk. <laughs> that to me is why there's you hear about all these like, weird startup companies that spend way too much money on massages and vodka shots and weird things like that. If it's your own money, you're not going to spend money on massages and vodka shots, right? Like it's a very different thing. So in that sense, when you have savings of your own, I think as entrepreneurs, you just become a lot more careful with your money. And that means there's less waste and more people sort of wanting to create things that actually provide value to the community instead of like, let's just get big at all costs and, you know, VCs will bail us out or, you know, going public will bail us out or something like that. And that's sadly the mentality we have today. So I would love to see that change. I would love to see that change. You know, this conversation reminds me, uh -huh. Jimmy, of as much money as Congress spends, uh -huh. you never hear about congressmen Mm -hmm. overspending their own office budgets. <laughs> Do you know why? Why? Because we all get an allocation of money uh -huh. Uh -huh. for our offices. Mm. And you can spend it on employees, mm. on traveling to and from your district, mm. on computers and other mm -hmm. means of doing your job. Mm. If you overspend your budget, it comes out of your personal pocket. <laughs> Your personal pocket. It does not come out of taxpayer money. Mm. That's why no one overspends their budget. Or if they do, they only do it once because it comes out of their personal pocket. Uh, and if there were a way mm. to do that in a more expanded way mm. in, than just the mm. congressmen and the senators' individual mm. budgets, it might 
make us more responsible. So if you were to feel like you're just spending other people's money, but you had to like have some skin in the game, yes, this would change things. Exactly. <laughs> wow. That would be amazing if like for every bill that you sponsored, you have to pay like 0.1% of it or something like it. Okay, this is $2 trillion program. You owe us $20 billion or, or $10 billion or something. I don't know. That would be amazing. I would love to see something like that. And in a sense, I think it would keep a lot of senators and congressmen like a little more honest. But then you might get the argument that only rich people are going to be running for these offices. But... From what I understand, like most senators and congressmen are rich already. Well, I think that there are certainly most are have above average incomes. Mm. But it's surprising. Well, mm. you look at a wonderful guy, David mm. Valadeo, mm. I would point to. Mm. He's a California congressman. He mm. just got reelected. He is in the dairy farming business, which mm. is a highly leveraged business mm. and he's highly leveraged mm. so if you look at a guy like david valadeo i mean mm. he is an example of you know a very hard-working american whose mm. balance sheet mm. looks scary mm. so no they're not all rich but mm. i think the vast majority are <laughs> doing pretty well <laughs> which brings me to sort of like that that saying which is a lot of people want money out of politics right like they hate the lobbying and i think i have a lot of sympathy for that right because it's like you're basically doing pay for play or some form of bribery or something like that in in some obscure way that's legal but in a sense with bitcoin what you get is you get to take the politics out of money which for me is the way in which you control all of the money influencing politics. What do you think of this idea and how do you think that changes mm. your job? Well, I love that notion. Mm. I don't know how it would work in implementation. I'll have mm. to think more about it. Mm. It would be obviously money is a huge influence on politics. Mm. And so if, if we can find ways to limit its negative influence, one of the ways I see it really exercising influence mm. is as a fence. Mm. You know, there are certain businesses that want to fence out the competition. Uh, regulatory moats. You got it. Yeah. I think that that's a place where money really does play a huge role mm. in protecting existing businesses so they can get bigger and bigger and mm. finding ways through mm. regulation to swat off the competition. Mm. Golly, if you could find a way to make policies that would make that more difficult to mm. build those mm -hmm. moats, those walls, whatever, oh, I think that the American economy mm. would flourish. Mm. I would love to see a lot more smaller companies because it does seem like the reason why a lot of those companies get that big is at least i'm theorizing is because they can lobby for certain regulatory modes a mom and pop grocery store doesn't have the budget to lobby congress or exactly like right that. so in a sense like we have a lot of this economy that's that's got these really large companies that control so much like talk me through like how they use that as an advantage to i mean regulatory moats are one to i don't know influence congress to give them certain advantages and so on let's say a large business mm -hmm. let's just pick a large technology business and mm -hmm. call it large tech mm -hmm. contributes to campaigns mm. on both sides of the aisle, by the way, mm -hmm. because you need friends on both sides <laughs> of the aisle. And then they bring in a plan mm. to allow their business to grow mm. to the disadvantage of another. Mm. And that, because their lobbyist is mm -hmm. a really nice person who you really <laughs> enjoy being with, you might listen to them mm. longer mm. or more often mm. than someone who has the countervailing point of view. And maybe these smaller competitors don't even know mm. that this big tech company is in lobbying for mm. something that is tremendously counter mm. to your interests mm. until it's too late. Mm. And I think that that sort of stealth access, mm. that one-sided access, mm. is a way that large business protects its largeness. Mm. 
that's kind of a very sad thing. <laughs> it is. Well, it is sad. But, yeah. uh, you know, I see it with big pharma. Mm. That's another area where... Big agro. Yeah. Big ag, big, big everything, mm. big business. Mm. Big labor mm. is in the same boat. Big mm. labor protects itself from small labor. Big mm. business protects itself from small business. Mm. So it's... <laughs> it's a constant challenge. Yeah, which reminds me, I do want to ask you one thing about politics specifically. It does feel like there's kind of been a shift in the last 10 years or so where, I don't know, Republicans were more known as like party of bit business and Democrats were more known as like, I don't know, people's party or something like that. But that seems to have shifted because like all the... A lot more bigger companies seem to be supporting Democrats, and Republicans seem to be more about the little guy. What the heck happened? Yeah, I would love to read a book about that, Uh, um, because I agree with you. mm. When I was a kid, Mm. the Democrat Party was the party of the Bill of Rights, the Mm. Constitution. Mm. Individual rights were really paramount. Now... It's the Republican Party Mm. that is defending the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, Mm. and the Democrats are not. Mm. And that is a complete change. Mm. I see transparency versus privacy Mm. as having flipped. Mm. I think now the Republicans are the party of government transparency and Mm. personal privacy, Mm. and Democrats are just the opposite. To me, that's a flip mm. from the way I thought about it when I was a kid. Mm. So, and I also think we used to call them just a few years ago, we referred to them as Walmart Republicans. Mm. They were blue collar mm-hmm. Republicans. Mm. At one point, they were called Reagan Republicans mm-hmm. beca- or Reagan Democrats mm-hmm. because they tended to be either smaller business mm. or blue collar, mm. which had at one time been the base of the mm-hmm. Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. Now they're the base of the Republican <laughs> Party. And yeah. you're right, it seems like big business, mm-hmm. a Wall Street, mm-hmm. big tech mm-hmm. in particular, are very much the base of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. How that happened, how it flipped, mm-hmm. should be material for a fascinating read. Yeah. Well, I mean, not just the read. We've sort of lived through it. It's hard to explain what the heck happened. Like, there's almost like like a realignment of sorts that seems to have happened that I really still don't fully get. Yeah, Uh, I don't get it either. Jimmy, I was married. My husband is no longer mm -hmm. alive, but Mm -hmm. he and I were married for 31 years. Mm -hmm. He was a Democrat when Mm -hmm. I married him. Mm -hmm. He was a Democrat for the first 25 years of our marriage. Mm -hmm. And he was Mm -hmm. part of those, Mm -hmm. the blue collar, Mm -hmm. small business, working American Mm -hmm. that identified with the Democrat Party that eventually switched and Mm -hmm. became a Republican. And when he died, he was an ardent Republican. Mm -hmm. He hadn't changed. (laughs) The parties had changed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. Mm. Yeah, well... It's a fascinating question if any of you listeners are interested in writing about this. I think this would make a fascinating book. It would. All right. So I think we're, we're getting to the close of this time. So this is a question that I like to ask, uh, ask my guests. First is, 20 years from now, where do you see Bitcoin and how do you think it changes politics? Mm. 20 years from now, I see Bitcoin as a part of every diversified asset allocation. Mm. I see it as a part of retirement funds. Mm. I see it as a part of mutual funds, Mm. of exchange-traded funds. Mm. I see it as an adjunct Mm. to every country's economy, Mm. even the bigs, Mm. you know, even the U.S., China, Japan. And I hope that it will be a major part of the individual working person's investments. Mm -hmm. Because the fundamentals of Bitcoin are so tried and true. Mm -hmm. They are so simple. Mm -hmm. They're so historically correct Mm -hmm. that I just see Bitcoin becoming embedded 
in the next 20 years in the world lexicon, certainly the American lexicon, yeah. and I see it being respected right alongside what are currently mainstream currencies. Mm. Furthermore, mm. if the U.S. dollar is no longer the world reserve currency, mm. I can see, and it, let's say it's a basket of currencies that becomes mm. the world reserve currency, mm. I can see Bitcoin being a big player in that basket because it is internationally ubiquitous mm. and capable of being owned by people all over the world and its value being preserved by mm. people all over the world. So I think it becomes not only fashionable to be stable, but fashionable to have it sit alongside the strongest world currencies in a basket of currencies that is deemed stable and maybe even is the stabilizer in that basket. So I'm pretty high on it, as you can see. <laughs> How would that affect politics? Though? Like, do you think you'll have maybe more budget constraints or something like that? Because in a sense, that's a large part of the problem right now. Yeah. And I wish I knew. Mm. That is, I haven't thought it through, or mm. it's still murky to mm. me. Mm. Jimmy, I'm relying on people like you and your <laughs> listeners to inform me mm. about where you see that going and how we get there. Well, thank you so much for coming on this show. Uh, where can people find you? How can people follow you online? Well, uh, right now we're still at lemusforwyoming.com, which mm. is a campaign mm. website, mm. but in January, it will change to a more official website. So it'll be something like Cynthia Lemus at Senate.gov or something mm, yeah. like that. So stay tuned. <laughs> We're in transition from the unofficial to the official. Mm. But that doesn't mean I don't want to engage with this thought group because mm -hmm. I see you and your listeners as, as thought leaders and helping form the intellectual and cultural basis mm. for how we integrate Bitcoin into the future. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure, Jimmy. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Cynthia can be found at, at Cynthia M. Loomis on Twitter and on LoomisForWyoming.com. Until next time, fiat delenda est.